So even though it sounds really simplified, um, you need to make sure that you choose an agent that you feel really comfortable with. So, And just like in most areas of life, when you're matching people, whether it be agents and sellers or in a romantic relationship even, um, people, you know, prefer to be matched with certain types of people and not all agents are the same and have the same value set. Welcome to Smart Selling Steps with Cadinia Property, where you'll get the insider insights on the best way to get your property sold in the current real estate market. Welcome back to the Cardinia Property Podcast about real estate the way it should be here in beautiful Bayside, Geelong. So I'm Abby Jane, part of the Cadinia Property Marketing Team. I'm here with co-founders and directors Jackson and Sarah Wilson, who today are going to take you through the smart way to select your agent. Welcome, Sarah and Jackson. Hi, Abby. Thanks, Abby. Sarah, my first question I have for you, there's obviously a lot of different types of real estate agents out there, good ones, some not so so good ones. How on earth do sellers differentiate between them all and and choose the right agent for their particular property? It's a tricky question and one we get all the time because I think that people have the perception that selling uh, a property can be quite stressful Um, And sometimes it can be quite stressful, but if you do choose the right agent, then it can really help reduce the stress and make for a smooth process. Um, I think one of the things is that we don't sell property all the time. On average, people only sell property every seven years. So sometimes people just don't know what they don't know. Um, They don't know the questions to ask when they're interviewing agents. Um, So it's important as a seller to educate yourself before you uh, start that process because it is one of the biggest assets that most people hold is a pro- is a property. Um, so it's good to do, do some research yourself before you go into interviewing agents. Um, the relationship and communication between the agents and the sellers is is actually one of the number one things. Well, not number one. It's part of a number of things that will affect the final price, the sale price. Um, and it's so it's really important to choose an agent agent that you feel comfortable working with, um, and who you feel will actively put your interests in front of their own, and offers an element of safety throughout the process too. and obviously trust as well this yeah. is a big this is a lot of cash safety, you're putting in their hands safety means that if there's a time where something's not happening the way that they that, that's been promised that enables the seller um, a way of a way out so to speak so even though it sounds really simplified um, you need to make sure that you choose an agent that you feel really comfortable with so, and just like in most areas of life, when you're matching people, whether it be agents and sellers or in a romantic relationship, even um, people, you know, pre- prefer to be matched with certain types of people. And not all agents are the same and have the same value set. Um, some of the types of agents out there are the high pressure, high intensity agents. And I'm sure we've all seen them on. The reality TV shows. Yeah, the, the really full-on one with the billion-dollar listings. Yeah. <laughs> I know the ones you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, then there's the low-key patient-style salesperson, the transactional-based agent focused only on pushing a sale at any price um, and any circumstance just so they can whack up a sold sign. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the highly competent, skilled and trained agent or the all-talk and no-action agent as well. 
Um, so I think it's really important when you're interviewing agents to make sure that you've got some questions um, prepared um, and you can also check out their Google reviews. That's a really good um, place to start as well. Because obviously, I mean, there are some agents there that if you're average homeowner, you wouldn't want that type of salesperson, like particularly the all-talk, no-action agent. No one wants the, the bludger, I think. No. The <laughs> but problem the rest is that there's, there's the one start, that aligns with your values no, for each. No real estate agent ever starts their interview process with, look, I'm an idiot and I'm going to rip you <laughs> off. Um, so that's where it's really hard to discern uh, the wheat from the chaff. So, and there is some things, you, some really pointed questions you can ask as a seller before you put your house on the market. So what I want to know, Jackson, is these questions. This is what our audience is here for. What do we ask um, so we can um, identify the right, the right seller? Now, um, Sarah, um, I think you, you've obviously done a lot of research around this and did I hear you mention um, to me before you have an information booklet specifically that helps sellers with these questions? Yeah, we do have a guide to some of the questions that people might like to ask when interviewing agents and we're ha really happy to share this with the listeners. We'll put our email in the show notes. Do you like that? It sounds very <laughs> podcasty, show notes. <laughs> um, a couple of uh, examples of the questions are, um, what sets you apart from other agents? How much do I owe you if the property doesn't sell? Can you explain the framework of your negotiation strategy? How do your fees compare to your value? And do you offer a guarantee? And this booklet, Sarah, explains the, the kinds of answers you should be getting. Yeah, what you um, should be listening out for when, um, yeah. And those questions are probably a little bit outside of the square of the normal questions that people that will go into an yeah, interview with an agent will ask. People don't know what they don't know and they, they get led by the agent because the agent, you know, might sell a lot in the area or might, that they they have an element of faith in that the agent knows what they're talking about. One really great thing I heard one time was that people tend to talk most about what they feel is most important to them. So if someone comes out and really, if an agent comes out and is really bullish on days on market, you know, our average days on market is very short, then you potentially, you can read between the lines with that and say that, well, gosh, that must mean that the days on market that the agent uh, is quoting is the most important thing for them. Now, sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate to a good outcome for the seller because mm -hmm. I know if I was selling my house, I'd rather have another two weeks on the market and get another 20000 yeah, rather than price. just grab mm -hmm. the first buyer that comes in the first week. So little things like that, if if someone's talking, if an agent's talking to you and they're particularly strong on... Um, getting it off quickly, getting yeah, it off the market quickly. Getting days on market or yep. selling the highest number within an area. Mm. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're an area expert. It just means that they're focused on getting sold signs up. And so, yeah, there's yeah. things you can read between the lines that can give little clues. And in that presentation, initially, those little clues can mean thousands of dollars down the track. And I think um, everyone's everyone that's sold a property would be guilty of this but you would have seen a lot of sellers just cut right to the cash. Tell me what the property yeah. is worth because that's that's the number one thing they want to know. Uh, but when when you get to that figure, 
Um, obviously, as an agent, you need to substantiate that. So how can a seller know if an agent is trying to undersell or overinflate that price yeah, for their so own benefit? When you, if you analyse the job of an agent, it's not necessarily to be an expert guesser of values of property. That's not what you pay the agent to do. You, you pay the agent to firstly find a buyer for the property, so market the property, and secondly to extract the best price or negotiate on the seller's behalf. When we're talking about, and as you correctly said, Abby, most people, the first thing they want to know is, oh, what's my house worth? So what a seller should do in that instance is do some research beforehand because it's not necessarily the job of the agent to do that. Yeah. We have a good idea of what other properties are selling for and what uh, what your house would be worth as a seller. Um, but at the same time, it's not an exact science to try and estimate what this is. So if And one of the biggest problems about this process is the biases that are involved with um, determining what the value of a property is first up or before it's actually sold. So a couple of different methods of valuing a property are compar- the comparable sales evidence. So what as, as a seller you can do this um, now with ease whereas 10 or 20 years ago you couldn't do it because the information wasn't available. Yep. Now there's now, a, a digital footprint yeah, for every property. Well, you on, can online you can yep. look up what everything sold for in the street, in the neighbourhood or whatever. So it becomes quite simple of just doing a bit of due diligence and if you're not able to do this yourself, ask one of your kids to do it um, and they'll find what other similar properties, bedrooms, bathrooms, size of block, what they've sold for and it's important to use what the sale price is rather than what and people commonly make the mistake of looking at what some things are on the market for which is, a, is not an accurate representation of the value. Like we were only talking to some people today and they uh, the next door property that they the, the, to theirs was on the market. It's been on the market for 600 days. So right. they're thinking that their house is worth the same as that because it's very similar. But the reality is it's not worth what that asking price is because it's not sold. sold. That's an interesting distinction I'll point out for our listeners there when you say comparable comparable sales. Sales, yeah. You're talking about properties that have sold, that yes. have a figure against them, yep. not properties that have been listed by an agent who, which could possibly have those inflated prices well, sometimes, or have been on the market for a long yeah, time. And, and the market is, is liquid, it's fluid, it's changing and it's changing you know, on the downside. So it's not, it may not be intentionally or anything like that, but it might be worth a different amount than what it was initially put on the market at. Um, especially important to note there as well because compar- comparable sales in your area, it's important to yes, use you have to as well, not, use not to houses use another that are similar. Yeah. Yes. And, and so before it goes on the market, it, there's, there's three different groups, if you like. There's a seller, buyer and a real estate agent. Now, if everyone's trying to determine what the value of a house is, each of those groups has a bias to what they're thinking about. An agent will often be biased on the high side because they don't want to be conservative with their estimation because if they are too conservative, then the seller won't give them the job. A seller is often biased on the high side and it's called the endowment effect. So they will often 
um, and the endowment and fe- effect they have is emotional something, attachment. Yeah, then so they, they think it's worth more, like reason. the castle. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, you know, add a, the. the uh, Fake uh, lattice work on the veranda <laughs> and the big yes. aerial. Um, and so, the stolid gates. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So a seller will often believe or want their house to be worth more than it actually is um, because of that fact. And a buyer is on the opposite scale. They're trying to get something as cheap as possible. So often they have a biased opinion on the low side. So everyone's got these different mm. opinions. Um, and then it, before it's on the market or as it's on the market. So once a property's on the market, it, you you then move from looking at the comparable sales uh, as a method of valuing a property, and there's there's um, uh, rationale behind that. And one thing we suggest, if you do want to get an accurate assessment of value by someone who's not biased before you go on the market, you should pay five or six hundred, seven hundred dollars, and engage a sworn valuer. Ah, yes, to a property put a price yes. on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and what they do, they go in and they take all the emotion out of it and use good, solid, proven rationale that they have to justify and they arrive at a figure that with no emotion that they perceive it's worth and they get paid their $600 regardless. Yes, these are hard people. I have met them. Yeah, well, <laughs> they work for the banks. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're not. Sometimes they think. Um, that, well, sometimes people think, oh, they're always conservative. But you know, more often than not, they're accurate. Um, so and that that's is a, their job. Yeah. So it's a really good idea to get evaluation by an unbiased umpire before it goes on the market. Now, after it goes on the market, then all of that analysis goes out the window, and then you start looking at direct market feedback. Mm-hmm. So this is so because at any one time, the the market value is uh, by definition the price that there's more than one person who's prepared to buy the product for, whether it's house or a, you know a car or whatever. So direct market feedback is the feedback from inspections, inquiries, or even. Or, or um, uh, you know, the agent from what the market thinks of the product or the or the property. So, and sometimes no feedback is the loudest feedback of all. Mm. That's just simply saying if it's sitting on the market, not sold, then the market perceives the price is too dear, assuming it's being marketed correctly. So, so that's that's and that's the hardest thing for a seller to listen to sometimes mm. because. It's often a in a in a market where we're in now, which is not the same boom market as it was a little while ago. Um, then that figure of the or the feedback level is often a lot lower than where the seller's expectations were or are. Yeah, and we when we talk about feedback, we talk about not obviously just the price, but the house itself. Is it too big? Is it too small? Is it in a good spot? Absolutely. Um, all so of all of those that, things yeah. add up, but the reality is. If something is not presented nicely or it's in a bad location or, or then the price as it comes down can counteract those objections. So yeah. if something's on the market for $800,000 and isn't sold because it's, um, it needs a paint, if you reduce it down to 500000 pretty quickly you'll find someone who wants to buy it. Yeah. If it, and then so at some point between eight hundred where it's on the market for and five hundred, which is stupidly low, 
there's a figure that there's a buyer there's out a magic, there for. There's a magic figure yes. that's going to make everybody happy. Well, uh, well, no. It, Making people happy is not necessarily the job. It's it's more finding that high watermark of where the where the uh, there is a buyer, the best paying buyer. Yes. Um, now, Sarah, um, you what you've highlighted is really key in terms of sellers wanting that trust in an agent um, and finding a seller that aligns with personal values. Um, so we see a lot of fanfare of real estate agents who have really big profiles. You see them smiling on the back of buses. Uh, bragging about how many houses they've sold Um, but we are talking about lifelong assets and these are the biggest investments people make. Um, So how can sellers determine whether or not they can trust the agent they are interviewing with these big property dollars? That's a good question. I have to be careful when answering this one because you mentioned about being on the back of a bus and I have actually been on the back <laughs> of a bus at some point but not for this real estate business. It was about 10 years ago for something else. You're um, excused. So we're not on the back of buses at the moment. <laughs> um, I think that it's really important when you're employing an agent um, that you're not particularly employing someone so savage that they're going to scare away any prospective buyers but on the flip side you're not it's not also about employing a new best friend like it's you're not employing them to be fun and happy and fluffy with you all the time they're there to do a job yeah and and I think that mutual respect between both both parties plays a really big part part and like in, in any relationship um, one based on that respect will all, always achieve a more positive outcome that one's not that one that is not um, there two there's two types of trust that psychologists psychologist often refer to and one is effective trust and I think Jackson mentioned it earlier did you no, I'm yes, sure. um, effective Maybe. trust and the other is cognitive trust um, and having a good understanding of these two types of trust is a really good place to start when choosing an agent. One is about people and the other one is about competency and results. Right, so for those of you at home thinking of selling, um, Sarah, can you break down these types of trust for people and, and why these are important in an agent? Sure. Um, effective trust is the trust that you've got in your potential agent as a person. So be careful with this one because lots of agents are nice and friendly people. It's why they're in sales in the first place. They love a good chat. Yep. Um, they can be very charismatic if they're your you classic know. sales person. <laughs> yes. Um, and very nice in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really smart though if you're, you know, when you're thinking about um, hiring one of these agents to dig a little deeper um, and explore things, as I mentioned before, like their reviews. Um, Geelong being Geelong, it's pretty likely that you'll find someone who knows whoever you're speaking to, um, whether it be on a professional or a personal level. Um, so that would be a smart sort of place to start asking a few questions and just make sure that their personal values and their professional values um, match. Um, because lots of agents do can uh, are known to leave a trail of destruction behind them. And Geelong, it is a small world. If there's dirt there, you will find it. Yeah, that's right. It's easy to find dirt on someone in Geelong. <laughs> it doesn't take long to know someone that knows someone that knows someone. Um, it's. I think it's far better off to choose an agent who sells houses for high prices rather than one that sells a lot of houses. 
Um, and a way that you can dig a little bit around this is ask the agent for their own personal data, not the company data that they work for, their mm-hmm. own personal data versus the average data for the area in that in where you live. And then you would you take that against the comparable sales, um, you know, to see if they're yeah, it's know. all bits of the puzzle that you can yeah. add together. Um, and don't be afraid to ask questions of a more personal nature as well. Um, you know, have has the agent done what they said they're going to do? Are they on time and well is presented? This if you're, is this if you're talking to past clients? Yeah, you talk, well, you yes. say, so as a seller, you can chat with people who have dealt with that agent before. And interview those people to see if they were happy. Yeah. And yeah. if they kept their word on. Yeah, it's a great idea. Do, yeah. 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 Um, and even just checking the old, doing the old social media stalking is a good one. <laughs> um, so all those things will come into play when considering effective trust. Um, and so just a reminder that that type of trust is all around trusting the agent is a good person. So so effective trust very much to do with the actual person you are hiring, looking beyond their marketing profile. So in other words, do you research, do it well. Um, Jackson, I'm sure this is something you personally strive to build with clients yourself. Um, but can you tell us more about cognitive trust? Yes, yeah, so that's more just the, someone's professional ability. It's a little bit like uh, and some horror stories you hear when people are in a hospital if, uh, if they have surgery. Uh, the doctor may be very, very good at surgery, very technically uh, gifted, um, but the bedside manner may not be, uh, well, might need, leave a little bit to be desired. So that's someone who has a very high level of cognitive trust mm-hmm. and a low level of effective trust. Mm-hmm. So with as far as how you tell if someone has a high level of um, cognitive trust um, is that that how much they um, how many patients they keep alive? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> their past results, I suppose, that's one way. Their their form guide of of results, mm-hmm. um, and and sometimes you can um, see this with, I guess, the journey of becoming a profession. In any, this is in any field. Um, you first, you, when anyone starts any endeavor, they 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 um, they're consciously or they're often unconsciously incompetent at what they do. So if you said to me, uh, go and play a game of footy with Geelong, which I would love to do, um, I would I would think, yeah, I love footy because I watch a lot of it on TV. I, I'd be great at having a crack at that. So I'm consciously, I mean, I'm unconsciously un- incompetent because I once you put me on the ground, I wouldn't have, a, have an idea. Once I'd done a pre-season, I would realise after doing a few 2K time trials that I am incompetent but mm. I'd be very conscious of that fact because the whole rest of the team would be running rings around me. So so when and then you become, as you train and grow and learn, you become consciously uh, competent. So mm-hmm. you're really trying to improve and improving and, and the results are coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you reach a level of professionalism you and study and you're a, a, an expert in your field, you become unconsciously competent. So mm-hmm. you could pick any AFL player who's recently retired and put them back in to, um, to a game on round one and they would just 
be able, they'd be able to fit in because they've had a lot of years of training and and they, and they they've done it for a long time, so they're unconsciously competent. Mm-hmm. Um, so with with a professional for sense or for a real estate agent, being consciously competent is someone who uh, who really knows how to deal with has a disarming manner about them with a, with with everybody, um, but doesn't give away information when they shouldn't and and holds the seller's interests at heart through the process without alienating the buyer. Mm-hmm. And so that's um, that's kind of how uh, being having that cognitive trust and effective trust, having them moulded together, ends up um, giving you the the right result or having a good trustworthy person to deal with. There's two types of competent agents there really. Um, can you tell us, tell me more of the risks of the unconsciously incompetent, um, which sounds bad in any language. Well, what these, are some of the risks of going with an these agent? These are the is- ones, these are the cowboys out there who strut around like little peacocks and think they're fantastic and cause a trail of destruction. Yeah, they, They'll they be the ones the who will mm. be out there saying to a buyer, oh, look, if you offer this, I reckon I can get it through for you, not realising that that can, that that can be costing their client, who's the seller, thousands of dollars. Or these will be the ones who will write vendor must sell on the ads, implying that the, that the buyer can just pick up a bargain, yep. so come on in. And, and ones who, who don't even know that, that is something that's horrible for someone selling their house. Mm, okay. Um, so both the client and agent, they're being unaware of the damage being done? Of course, yeah, yep. So, I mean, to me that sounds pretty bad, but apparently consciously incompetent is even worse. Oh, well, they, yeah, it is. Because oh, they know, know they're doing. It's really manipulative. People who understand what they're doing mm. and the harm it does but still do it anyway because it's good for their own bank balance. Yep. And to me that's repulsive. It's a little bit, I, I don't know, I, I liken it to um, say tennis, the Australian Open's been on and and. Um, you've got the if anyone who's a tennis fan they'll remember Pat Rafter. He was a he was a gem, a really great bloke. Everyone loved him. Um, Going back away, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the top ten, won the U.S. Open or Wimbledon or whichever it was. We anyway, do those underwear but, ads. Yeah, well, I'm sure that you've got a very good memory for <laughs> marketing. You are in marketing, so I'm, I'm impressed that you remember that particular ad, Abby. Um, but he, he was the people's favourite and a great tennis player. Then you've got the likes of some of these modern ones now who they're great tennis players, really good, really in the top ten. But, you know, some of them you really question what sort of person they are. They're a bit bratty. By I the way, we know the behave. ones you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, I will pass on those last two options, unconsciously incompetent and consciously incompetent. Thank you very much, Jackson, for warning us about those. Thanks. Um, Sarah, one of the uh, big criticisms around agents um, is around their communication. Uh, so once you have a property on the market, what should sellers expect to see and hear once, once you've signed on that dotted line? I think that it's really important. It sort of comes hand in hand with that trust is the open and transparent dialogue between the agent and the seller. So what I mean by this is is both parties allowing and holding a safe space where 
um, the dialogue can be open to positive and negative aspects that are, you know, might be happening at the moment. So that might be some negative feedback or some positive feedback. Um, we might need to do a change in the price, whether it be higher or lower, um, but just really being open to looking at what's happening as so it happens in real time. Really honesty is the best Yeah, policy. and I think yeah. that um, being able to work with an agent's agent or agency who doesn't put you on a marketing conveyor belt and can be a little bit nimble as you go and as things change is, is, is really important as well. Um, because there might be elements of your property that might be holding up the sale. And to be able to have an open and upfront discussion with your agent is likely to get you closer to the result that you're after, which if your house is on the market, then the result is obviously a sale of your property. Um, unfortunately, the seller or the agent is unable to control the buyers or the market. But what we can control is that we can work through and explore and discuss what's happening once the property is on the market. And normally there's, well, not normally, there are three things that happen once the property goes on the market. One is that there's no inquiry and no inspections. The second thing is that there is people looking at the property, but there's no one wanting to buy it or make offers. And the third thing is that there's off, um, having people to make offers and wanting to buy the property, which is obviously where we want Ideal. to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but if we find ourselves that once we've been on the market for one week or two weeks that we're not in that space, um, then we need to have a chat and sort of just determine which pathway we take from there to make sure that we're on the right um the right road from A to B, B being getting the house sold for the client. So it sounds like the agent needs to be flexible um, as well, obviously, in terms of, yeah. Yeah, because I think the only thing's worse than like there's a, is having, I'm going to talk about a blind spot here. I'm going to need you to well, jump if, in. Well, if you, you don't want to be just thinking that it's, if, that it's the marketing's the problem, that it, the reason it's not sold, because it's the easiest thing in the world to tell the seller to go and spend another two or three or $4,000. But what happens if that doesn't work and mm. that doesn't necessarily work? Yep. So um, you want to be, you want to be just being safe around um, and, and looking at, every piece of the puzzle and not just one so mm. so and, and price being uh, being a very big part of that puzzle but in saying that you still the job is still to get the highest price that's out there yep yeah so i had a, a conversation with a client this morning who um we just sort of needed to revisit things and it's a hard conversation around price for me to have it's a high hard conversation for them to have as well um but if things aren't sort of moving and we're not getting to that third option three where we're getting people to offer on the property then we need to change some things so that was a really good conversation but the reason it was a good conversation is because we've both worked hard on developing that space of trusting each other um, and the client knows that what I'm recommending is in order is for her best interest but importantly, I'm never, we would never tell anyone what to do. Like it's definitely their decision. We're here to give the advice and to give a roadmap. And if people want to follow that roadmap, that's okay. But if they want to take another route to get to be, that's okay as well. That will help them get whatever way they want to do. Obviously, um, 
you, you can't always control the outcome. Like you said, you wouldn't tell anyone what to do, but I think what's really important here is the regular communication, the open of communication. Course, yeah. I've, I've heard some people selling their house and um, it's not, not going great, not getting offers, not getting inspections, and it'll just be radio silence literally exactly. from the agent. It's, and it's not the worst easy. possible it's, thing that can happen. It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> it, it's, it's, and and when, there's, uh, when there's not genuine care um, or there's uh, – it's just an easy thing for – for it to skip and mm. it's really important that uh, like most people can deal with bad news mm. um and and most people want to know want want to know what's happening yeah Especially when it, come, mm. when it comes mm. to them. I think, yeah, you're them. right Abby in that communication is one of the big things that people complain <laughs> about with agents um so a good question for people to ask when they're interviewing agents would be what do you expect what do you expect from me in you know, from each other probably in that space. Like are you going to com- be communicating with me by phone, by email, by text, how many times a week? Yeah, what's what does the best that look way to like? get to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jackson, um, talking about, you know, um, properties sort of not reaching their sort of desired outcomes, um, you know, in, in the space of time um, that sellers want them to, if a property is less attractive to more buyers because a less desirable location or, if, or some disrepair, I mean, should people, and this is a, a common question you would get, I assume, should people put more money into marketing campaigns to to try and bolster the, the reputation of the property they're selling? Um, sometimes and sometimes no. So um, I think it's, and the other things that uh, some people think is, okay, well, if I do some painting or if I renovate the house, will it be worth more? Um, or if I you know, if they improve the property. And a lot of um, advice is that, yes, you should do a lot of these things before it goes on the market. And a lot of those things are very costly to mm. do, and particularly now with tradesmen. One of the other big points, and, it, yeah, on the surface it does make sense, but it's really worth going into analysis, more analysis because what people don't often consider is the cost of the time. So the, the time, if you had have um, been considering selling six months ago um, but you were waiting to get the new bathroom in and the kitchen done and painted throughout, so that may have taken six months to, to do, to organise and facilitate and a lot of cost. Now, in the last six months, the real estate market's dropped probably mm. 5 to 10%. So... That if the house is worth eight hundred thousand dollars, what was worth eight hundred thousand dollars six months ago is now worth seven twenty. Right. So the cost of the renovations could have been maybe fifty thousand dollars. So not only have you spent more money, but you've also lost through the market dropping. Mm. So a lot of buyers can see through some of those cosmetic, issues, like cosmetic yeah. things, um, and and a lot of uh, people it's a little bit it's very tough to accurately assess the cost benefit of improving the property in order to sell it yes it looks nicer but the, the cost uh, the how much that translates into dollars that a buyer pays essentially at the, the end. return on investment yeah and it's yeah. really interesting i had never considered that the time people spend doing renovations, within that time there could be a market decline and eventually cancel out yeah. the value of the renovations that yeah. have been done. Alternatively, so. if the market's on the way up, 
then, and this is what happened, the, the agent would give advice to spend a heap of money on the property. That took time and then the market went up. So the agent's a hero because, the, you know, they've given this fantastic advice. There's not many of them that put their hand up now and say, oh, look, sorry, um, I've just cost you 50,000 bucks. <laughs> no, I imagine no one would want to put their hand up for that. Um, but if you've gone through the process and you're confident in sort of signing up with an agent, um, we've all heard those horror stories about agents ghosting you when interest um, in the property is down. Um, you talk us through how an agent should be following through, like what you should expect from an agent after you have signed um, in terms of the, the process. Well, it, there's, and this comes back to each individual person, how much they want to and be engaged. How much engaged communication with. they yeah, want. Yeah, mm-hmm. so if, if I was selling my house, I'd only want to know, you know, once there's an interested person keen to make an offer. Um but some I think people, a lot of people want to know more, <laughs> more than, than that. that. Yes, exactly. How yeah. many people have been in my house? Yeah, exactly. So, so any any a weekly update is crucial, um, and and also face to face visits and a plan of attack as to what to do if if at certain points, and that should be set up in the beginning, mm-hmm. and then everyone agrees to that, and then follows that through. Um, so uh, that's where. You, ha- you have a professional agent working for you, they'll be able to handle your sale in any market if their plan of attack is correct and, um, and best practice. So, um, so and that doesn't necessarily mean being, you know, y- y- there could be some hard conversations that come um, and, and it's a, a, a good thing not, you know, not to shoot the messenger. Mm-hmm. So that's what we what we would call, I guess, an after-listing service in that they should be expecting an obviously strategy um, for you in terms of um, yes. how, yeah, how they, that property they should be. You should be market. expecting accurate feedback. Mm-hmm. Like no one, li- no one likes – one of the biggest criticisms that we get is where an agent will have either an open for inspection or they'll show a buyer through and the seller will get told, oh, they loved it, you know, they loved this and that and the other about it, but then there's no offer. Or there's that's it. There's nothing after that. So th- the better feedback is that buyer didn't want to buy it because it doesn't matter if they like your carpet or your curtains. It's irrelevant. You, you're not interested in that. You want to know whether that buyer wants to buy it or if they don't. And if mm. they don't, that's okay. Move on to the next one or chart your way forward. Yep. And how you are going to get get that sold sticker? Yes. At yeah. the best price. At the best price always. Well, a very in-depth insight there on the smart way to select a real estate agent that you can trust with selling your property. So as we talked about before, if you would like a copy of the Cardinia Property Booklet, Eight Questions Smart Sellers Ask, so you're armed with the right questions when you sell your property, you can email s.wilson at cardiniaproperty.com.au. Jackson and Sarah, thank you again for your time today. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Abby. You put us under the in the hot seat today. I, I did. <laughs> so. 